The second reading of the word is in Colossians, and it's going to be 15 through 20 in chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So uh, the Dutch theologian and statesman named Abraham Kuyper famously said these words. You've probably heard them before. Um, He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now we, as a church, believe this to be true, or at least that's what we say in the vision of our church. The vision of our church is this, to be a people who spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things through Christ. Now, the vision of our church is something I like for us to look at and revisit around this time every year uh, to remind ourselves of what we're about as a church. And so we'll be back in the series of 1 Corinthians next Sunday, but I think Today, it's a good reminder that we're, that we're not here uh, for you necessarily, but for Jesus ultimately. So if we say we believe this, what does that look like for us as a church? So first, we have to understand supremacy uh, because it's not a word that shows up in our everyday vernacular, uh, but it's a massive theological distinction that defines who God is in relation to your life and the world. So to say that God is supreme over all of life is declaring something. It's not a light statement. Because it's declaring that we believe God is moving in our midst in every way and that his sovereign purposes are being laid out in our world. That there is not one square inch of your life or my life or our world in which God is not at work. And as the church of Jesus Christ, we must understand that we do have a supreme ruler. But it's not a ruler who rules with an iron fist or who has term limits or a ruler who even dies. This ruler that we have doesn't even sleep or slumber. He doesn't take naps. He doesn't take a break. So to to declare this as a church, to put it at the forefront of of who we are, is to say that we believe there's something beyond us, something outside of ourselves that sustains us and governs us. 
And so this gives a declaration to our belief that God is not only supreme over our salvation, but the totality of our lives. So I want to ask two questions today concerning our mission. One is, how supreme is God? So this will be the expositional portion of, uh, of the sermon. It'll be the longest one. There will be a number of, of subheadings, so just ready yourself for that if you're taking notes. But we're answering the question, how supreme is God from Colossians chapter 1? And then the second question will be way more practical and specific to this church, which is, how do we spread a passion for this supremacy that we're going to learn about in Colossians 1? So how supreme is God, and how do we spread a passion for this supremacy? So the first question, how supreme is God? Uh, look, look there with me at the text again that Brett just read for us in, in verses 15 through 20. He, being Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So three works we see God doing that point to his supremacy from these verses. And all of them, just so you know, all of them happen in Christ and through Christ. All of them. So the first work is his creating work in verses 15 and 16. In in verse 15, Paul makes a conclusive statement concerning Jesus after what he has just said about Jesus in verses 13 and 14 that we did not read, but they read like this. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now, starting in verse 15, he's saying this is who he is. The one who has saved you, this is who he is, just so you're clear. And the conclusive statement that he makes here in verse 15 is twofold. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then secondly, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So this is significant because Paul is not starting with the virgin birth. He's not saying this is where Jesus began, as many uh, believe and teach. But he starts from the very beginning of the biblical story. Even so, he's starting even before the biblical story uh, that starts in Genesis chapter 1 for us in our Bibles. Because the idea that Jesus is the image of God points us back to humanity being created in God's image in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In, In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the word used for image in Genesis is the same word, just in Greek, same definition, used here in Colossians chapter 1. Because to say, to say that Christ is the image of God, as, as one uh, New Testament scholar, F.F. F. Bruce says, 
He says that in him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed. That in him the invisible has become visible. So that's the first part of this conclusive statement. The second part of this conclusive statement in verse 15 says he is the firstborn of all creation. Or this could be translated as well as firstborn before all creation. Because Paul is not saying that Jesus was the first created being. That's not what he's saying there. But rather, he's saying that that he was was there when creation's work began, and it was for him as well as through him that creation's work was completed. So what Paul is making clear to his readers is that Jesus was preexistent. And to speak of him in these terms is to declare him God of every square inch of the universe. So not only is Jesus before the creation, he is also the key to creation. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. So this term that we see show up here, all things, is not used by Paul as sort of an exaggeration. Just to say, man, he he is supreme over a lot of stuff, guys. It's not everything, but it might as well be. This is not what Paul is doing here. He's not just saying that there's a lot of things that Jesus is over. But in an inanimate matter irrational creatures, all of these things, both visible and invisible, all perform their maker's bidding. Just to give you some examples from the scriptures. At his pleasure, the Red Sea divided and its waters stood up as walls, Exodus chapter 14. At his pleasure, the earth opened her mouth and the guilty rebels went down alive into the pit, number 16. When he so ordered, the sun stood still, Joshua 1. To exemplify his supremacy, he made ravens carry food to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. He made iron to swim on the top of the waters in 2 Kings chapter 17. He made lions to be tame when Daniel was cast into the den of lions. And in the same book, he kept the fire from burning the three Hebrew men. Just to name a few. Which is to say, nothing, nothing is exempt from God's, from Christ's creating work. Things in heaven, things on earth, the things that are visible, and the things that are invisible to us. All do their maker's bidding. Things you can see, touch, and smell, but also things you interact with and experience, like ideas and systems and structures, are all under Christ's supremacy. So Paul mentions that here when he says thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Uh, He's he's saying, look, uh, not just kings and rulers, but also their dominions, the things in which they rule, the authority and power they have all come from Jesus. All were created through him and for him. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, 
he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. Whatever he pleases. Now, for those of you, just to pause for just a moment, because I know this is, this is a lot to kind of take in. So especially if you're someone who is searching and you want to know more about Christianity and, and this faith that we hold to here at this church, you may scoff at this notion that there's actually a God who is there orchestrating the events of this world, but not only that, also orchestrating the events of your life. But if you are being intellectually honest, you know that you've set up someone or something uh, or some idea or some philosophy as supreme in your life. If you were to think about it, you have something that is controlling you. You have something that is kind of working your, uh, your life in, in a certain uh, di- direction. So, so you could say you're, you're bowing the knee to something. It might be a political system. It might be your family life, it might be your vocation, it might be the money that you have or the money that you want to make, it might be success. It may just be a happy life by any means necessary. And all of these, as you probably already know, or you are figuring out, or you will will know in the future, all of these make really poor rulers. Why? Because they're not supreme. Their plans can be thwarted. And yet you live as if they can't. And you live as if they are supreme. Now, Christian brother and sister, we falter here too. Because you're willing to say, God is my ruler when your life is going well but not so much when suffering comes or when hard times arise, and they will come. But because you believe that God is good, then you have to, to, to trust the way in which he leads. Not only the Psalms talk about how, the, how, the, how God uh, steers the king's heart, so it's not just that he's steering the king's hearts and the rulers of this world. Uh, you have to also trust that he's also steering and directing your heart as well. This is why John Calvin could say, you must submit to supreme suffering in order to discover the completion of joy. The Lord bruises me, but I am abundantly satisfied since it is from his hand. So if you can only receive the goodness of God and not the suffering, you will not have your joy made complete, is what Calvin is teaching us there. But we have to recognize that it is all from his good hand. So the church as a people, while not understanding every detail of why things happen, that is not our job, But even though we don't understand everything that is happening in our world and everything that God could possibly be doing, we still believe and trust in the supremacy of God. We are not floating through this world in some dreamlike state. That is not what we are doing. We are grounded in the greater reality that is created and governed by God our Father. Which brings us to the second work of God. Because he is not only the creator, but he's also the sustainer of our world, and he's the sustainer 
of the church. So his sustaining word, look at verses 17 and 18 in our text. Paul says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So in these verses, the phrase uh, all things shows up again, but, but the phrase all things is used differently here than in verse 16. And this is to communicate that God is, is not only the creator of all things, but also the sustainer of that which he has created. Which reminds us that the only way in which this world could be sent into a tailspin, because oftentimes we think, well, if this government official gets in, into power or, or this particular uh, idea gets passed along, that we are, we are going to hell in a handbasket. Well, the only way that could possibly happen is if God removed his hand from this world. And he's not doing that. And we witness the sustaining work in, 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 both, in both the world and also in the church. Um, but, for, but first, God is a sustainer of the world. So I've brought this up before, but there is, a, there is a theory in philosophy known as the clockmaker theory. And this theory asserts that God created the universe. And this is a very simplistic way of explaining it. But, but he, he created the universe, but he's not actively involved in his creation now. Just as someone who, who makes a clock or a, a nice watch, they operate independently of that which they have created. They don't, they don't do anything else. They're not sitting here moving the hands and the dials around for you. They're not doing that any longer. But as we've seen in verse 17, this is not true of our God. Because all things hold together in him. So if Jesus removes himself from the situation, if he removes himself from our world, then we and our world would cease to exist. God does not and cannot divorce himself from his creation. That's impossible. He's not like the clockmaker. And although this is, uh, is a broken creation now, he is still working in the way that, uh, it is still working in the way that God intended it to work. And he sustains it to work according to his sovereign purposes. Because his sovereign purposes, purposes are his supremacy being lived out, being worked out into our world. So while the creation is being sustained uh, is, is a proof of God's existence, in my opinion, probably one of the more important proof that there's a higher power sustaining this universe is God's sustainment of his people known as the church. There's a story told um, that, the, that King Frederick the Great of Prussia once asked his physician to give him proof for the existence of God. And his physician's answer was, your majesty... It's the continued existence of the Jews. The continued existence of God's people, we would answer it in that way, because this is an idea uh, that the church preserves as well. As we learned in Acts, that, that, that the promise of a Messiah is not only for the Jews, but it's a promise for all people. 
And we witness this sort of perseverance in, of the saints today, and uh, we, get the, we get the Voice of the Martyrs um, newsletter every month, and I was just reading it this week, and it's all in North Korea, and the church is alive in North Korea. The church is alive in China. The church is alive in Iran. The church is alive in these dark, dark places where people can be killed for their faith. And for that matter, just so we don't think that the United States is some uh, special place that that God has ordained to send the gospel out to the nations, um, the church is still alive in the United States, despite everything against it. And so as we pray for and support the persecuted church in other parts of the world, it's good to remember that there are not countries where we hope, these are not countries where we hope the church to exist, but where it already does. We may not know about them all, but they're there. That God's people, the church, are moving forward despite persecution, despite scandal, despite heresies that some sometimes enter into the churches and false accusations And oftentimes in these situations is where the church most strives and thrives. So his sustaining work of preserving a people for himself dispels any kind of argument against his existence. How could people endure immense persecution and not only survive but thrive? But by the sustaining work of God in Christ as the head of the church. So our nourishment as the church is given to us by Christ because nothing living can go on living without a physical head. And this is true for the church as well, not just your physical body. Paul emphasizes the same idea in Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head, speaking about Jesus, over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So so to lose your head, to lose Christ, is to lose your ability to receive nourishment, to think, to understand, to work, or even to rest. So when a church drifts into, into the heresy of denying the deity of Christ, which there are many, and I'll put church in quotation, air quotes there, the church, moves into, because they they cease to to be a church when they deny the deity of Christ, is what I'm saying here. Because what they're saying essentially is, we don't need a head. We don't need one. We can do this on our own. So fundamentally saying that Christ is not supreme. That we are the masters of our destiny. But apart from submission to Christ's supremacy over a church, it it will not survive very long. It will dwindle in its numbers and eventually will cease to exist and disappear. It's happening right now with a number of denominations around the world, ceasing to exist. And that happens because of the third work that God is doing, which is reconciling all things to himself through Christ. Look at verses 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because to deny Christ as the head of the church is to deny this work that he has accomplished for the church on the cross. Essentially saying, we can save ourselves. Not only can we take care of ourselves, but we can save ourselves. We can give ourselves salvation. If we just do the right things and uh, have the right people around us, then, then we can be saved as long as we are uh, pleasing God with our lives. And that's not the gospel. So to say that Christ is our head is to say that we believe Jesus to be God, one, And the blood of the cross is the only way that we have peace with God. And this is what sustains us. It's not money. It's it's not personalities. It's not the next program that we can put into place. It's not whether we think we are a cool church or not a cool church. It's not uh, the music that we have playing up here with these talented musicians. It's nothing in, in and of ourselves. It is only the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. His reconciling work. That's why we exist as a church. So how do we do this? How do we make all of this known? And this is sort of our response to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 as, as a church. And I remember, I, was, I don't know if Joshua Fielder remembers this, but the, one of the first times I met Josh, we went out for lunch, and he, um, he said something about our, 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 our vision statement was too big and unattainable. And um, I don't know if you remember this, Joshua, but you did say that. I'm throwing, you, I'm throwing you under the bus. Um, it was a good challenge, but it was, another, it was also a way to go, well, yeah, of course. That's, that's what we want it to be. We want it to be something that is, that is beyond us. But we are going to take kind of, kind of small baby steps in which uh, to put this idea and this truth before uh, people, before us as a church, but also before a watching world. And so we do this... Uh, with certain things that we call our values. So we have our vision and we have our values, and we break it down like this kind of in a simple manner. But as a church, we do this by being a word-centered community on mission together. A word-centered community on mission together. And that's not, that's not something that we just have because it's, it's clever and it's easy to remember and it looks good on our website in a certain font and color. Uh, that's, not, that's not the reason we have it. We truly do try to live out the supremacy of Christ in all things through these values. Not perfectly, but we try. Because we want to take a vision that can be big and large and unattainable and that can appear very abstract and hard to apply and translate it into something concrete and not just applicable, not just say, hey, we can apply these things, but it's actually livable. So we want to to see the supremacy of Christ as a life system, which means that the gospel doesn't only impact your rescue from Satan, sin, and death, although it does, and that is massive, but it also impacts your entire life. 
So the way we try to live that out here is by organizing this under three main categories that we call our values as a church. And we, have, we do have three, and they are word, community, and mission. So I want to I just run through these fairly quick. I could get up a lot of detail here, but we're not going to go into a lot of detail here. But just to give you an overview of how we as a church try to live out this belief in the supremacy of Christ in all things. So the first, we, we want to make the word of God a priority in everything that we do, in everything that we do. We want, we want to always be known as a word-centered church. And we believe that, that, that God has given us his word in love so that we might live according to this, obviously. But we also believe that these are the very words of God in this Bible that nourish us, and give us life. That apart from this word, we, we, we don't really have anything else. And it's reminding us of this great redemptive story that is Christ and him crucified. So we submit ourselves to his word in every way, on, on Sundays, but also hopefully throughout the week, that we are submitting ourselves to this word. The, the late pastor uh, of uh, All Souls Church in London, John Stott, wrote these words. He said that the belief in the authority of Scripture and submission to the authority of Scripture are necessary consequences, are necessary consequences of our submission to the Lordship of Jesus. So that's first, the Word. The second is what is birthed out of this commitment to the Word of God, and that is community. We would not have the community we have if it wasn't for the word of God being faithfully proclaimed week in and week out at Christ the King Church. What's birthed out of that is the Christian community. So, and this is something, too, that you'll hear me kind of harp on, but we don't want to just talk about community, as a lot of churches do. We actually want to see true biblical community come into fruition in this church. We want to pursue what it looks like to live life together in this way. I heard I was reading a book this week that quoted a Roman Catholic monk named Basil Pennington, and he said that the Christian community is love's victory over death by ordinary people in union with Christ by the grace of his victory. So community is love's victory over death by ordinary people in union with Christ by the grace of his victory. And I thought that was such a beautiful uh, description of what the Christian, the biblical Christian community is supposed to look like, the church is supposed to look like, that declares that we don't do this life together as the body of Christ in our own strength. And if you've tried to do that, you, you'll recognize pretty quickly uh, that you can't. It's not possible. But we, but we do this life together as the body of Christ because of and by our union with Jesus. And if we're to look at a clear biblical description of what this is to look like, I, I have to point us to one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So this is after the Holy Spirit has been given, after Peter reiterates the whole story of God, the gospel message, and more people come, come to faith in Jesus in this moment. This is when we see this 
biblical community birthed. That's sort of the order that we see there. Let me just read it for us. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people, both inside the church and outside the church. So this wasn't a question of systems and structures necessarily. Those do come. It was primarily a moving of the Holy Spirit of God and the renewal of the gospel that was moving the church to live in this way. Nothing else was doing that. And this involves conflict. This involves suffering. This involves sacrifice. This involves mourning. This involves carrying other people's burdens with them. It's hard, is what I'm trying to say. But it also includes joy. It also includes Laughter. It also includes celebrating and uh, providing for one another. This is true biblical community. Acts 2 is not just one example among many about what biblical community is. It is the biblical example. We don't just read it and then move on and say, we'll figure it out. And then finally, our third value is making sure as a church that we are living our life on mission together. Now, this doesn't necessarily play out all the time, and we have these these great evangelistic efforts, or we're bringing in speakers to give evangelistic sermons, you know, for a week or anything like that, or it, it, it might be that. It, you might uh, have just an evangelistic effort, and that's, and that's great, and that's good, and I would encourage that greatly. But it's also, too, and I think that's where our mind goes to, which is why I separate it from what I'm about to say. But it's also thinking very strategically about the places in which God has called you. You have been called to a vocation, maybe. You have been called to, uh, to, to, to stay at home with your kids. You have been called to a school. You have been called to maybe a job that you hate going to every Monday morning. But you have been called there. And on top of that, as a believer, you are called to be on mission for the sake of the gospel in that place. There is no exception to that. We are called to those places. We are called to bring the light of the gospel there. We are called to plant a small garden of God's kingdom there. That's what we're called to. Because if you notice in Acts chapter 2, Again, when the church lives in this way, people come to faith in Christ. And I didn't read all of verse 47, but this is the last part of verse 47. After all of this living is happening, after the the, the believers are living life together and uh, both people inside and outside the church are are looking at it and, and they're seeing it, it says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People were coming to know Jesus. 
because of what Christ had done in them, they were now compelled to bring others into the mix. They were like, this is, this is like nothing we've ever seen. And this was demonstrated by their life together. They were showing the world what it meant to live and be a citizen in the kingdom of God and telling them what it looked like. That because of the grace and mercy we have received from God in Christ, we too, as Christ the King Church, we can now go into all the world making disciples and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by declaring to them the great reality of the supremacy of God in all things through Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, our great God and King, our supreme ruler over our, our lives, our life together as the body of Christ, over our world. We submit our, our lives to you individually, but we also submit our life together as this body of believers to you as well. That we acknowledge that you are uh, the ruler, that you are our king, and that you govern all things for our good and for your glory. God, I pray that we would be a people who seek to show the supremacy of Christ in all things, in our work, in our family life, in our schools, in whatever place that you call us to be, that we would declare the name of Christ there. And it's in his name that we pray all of these things, and we go out in his power. Amen.